We're reading this morning from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Father, as we approach your word this morning, we join our voices together with the Apostle Paul millennia ago, praying that in your abundant glory, God, in your mercy, you would be pleased to be at work in our hearts through your spirit. God, we confess that we have tasted of your love and we boldly ask that through your son, you would help us to experience it more and more, that you would give us the strength to comprehend with the saints throughout the ages the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ for us, his little brothers and sisters. God, we ask that you would uh, do this, that you might receive glory in our lives, that you would receive glory in our church and in this world now and forevermore. Amen. Well, this morning's text, uh, as you may have guessed, is a prayer from the Apostle Paul. It is a second of his prayers from the book of Ephesians. It is a beautiful prayer. It is a well-known prayer, one that's oftentimes quoted. Uh, But when we compare the content of this prayer with the content of our own prayers, uh, we can possibly notice there is a definitive gap between what we oftentimes pray for and what Paul focuses on here in this prayer. And in fact, if, if we think about it, the, the same way that how we use our time, how we use our money can reveal something about our priorities, the same can also be said about our prayers. In other words, the content of our prayers, at least functionally, what, reveal to us what we believe to be of greatest importance. And so this morning as we begin, I want you to just take a a moment and look back at your prayers over the past few days and consider what they reveal about your priorities. Now for some of us, our prayers would reveal that we place an undue importance on physical health and on safety. There's nothing wrong with praying about these things, of course. There's nothing wrong with a desire to recover from sickness or uh, have improved health. There's nothing wrong for praying for safe travels during the holiday season. And yet, if we place an undue importance on these things, it can be a good thing that we place too much prominence on, especially if it's the only thing that we ever pray about. Now, for others of us, we might place too much priority in our prayers on ourselves. With a, We spend a disproportionate amount of time in our prayers concerned with only ourselves. And I want us to be sensitive to that because in one sense, this makes sense. You know yourself better than you know anyone else. 
You know your shortcomings, you know your failures, you know your needs better than you know anyone else's shortcomings and failures and needs. And so it makes sense that you, praying for yourself, would take up a sizable portion of your prayers. But at the same time, those prayers can reveal a misplaced priority if that's all that we talk about to God. Still, for others of us today, our prayers are non-existent, and they reveal different priorities. For all of our talk about God, the fact that we don't spend time praying consistently or considerately, it reveals that functionally we believe that prayer is ineffective, or that we believe that God is an unnecessary add-on to our lives, that we can handle the task of spirituality, of living this life without Him. Thank you very much. So consider... What do your prayers reveal about your priorities at Christmas? This Advent, we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and we've been reminded time and time again of the incredible riches of the true Christmas story. In chapter 1, Paul sums up the entire book of Ephesians when he says this in verses 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The book of Ephesians paints this picture of the gospel and by extension a picture of the Christmas story that is impossible for us to grow bored with. It's impossible for us to ignore. It's impossible for us to look at this and to find it to be unimportant. In fact, the book of Ephesians tells us that we see incredible riches of this true Christmas story in contrast to the relative emptiness of the rest of what all of the the culture says about the true meaning of Christmas. This morning's text is overflowing with this truth. In fact, it is the overflow of what we've read to this point in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians starts in in chapter 1 reminding us that Christmas is a part of God's eternal plan for his eternal glory and our eternal joy. Christmas is indeed about joy, just as the angels declare to the uh, shepherds. It's it's indeed about God's eternal glory, just as the angels sang that night. And the truth of Christmas is that the both of them are, are wed together from before time began in the eternal plan of God. Last week, we were in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians 2, we saw this incredible contrast uh, between who we once were and who we now are in Christ, between the children of wrath and the children of God, those who were dead in sin, but now those who are alive in Christ. And again, we see this eternal joy, this eternal glory wed together in our salvation. Ephesians 2 answers the question, why has God saved you? Why has God adopted you? And the answer is this, so that now, throughout eternity, you might be a living testament to how glorious and beautiful and kind God is toward his children. Ephesians chapter 2 says it this way, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages 
he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, this morning's text in chapter 3 stands at a pivotal point in the book of Ephesians. It is this transition point between Paul describing the incredible riches of God's glory in the gospel and then, in the rest of the book, looking at the implications of that gospel for here and now. And so this prayer stands at the transition point. It closes one section and prepares us to begin, to begin this other section. And here, Paul prays that you might be strengthened in your heart to more fully grasp, and to more fully experience the love that Christ has for you. You could spend eternity plunging the depths of Christ's incredible love for you, and you would just be scraping the surface. And that's what Paul prays for here. Paul prays that we would begin to full, more fully grasp Christ's love for us. But how does he do that? How does he convey this hope? What are the priorities for those who are now in Christ? Consider just five statements from this text as we look at it this morning. First in verse 14, starting in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. If you've read the book of Ephesians uh, recently, you may be aware that uh, Ephesians chapter 3 contains this really long digression. It starts at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 3 in verse 1. Paul begins chapter 3 by saying, for this reason, and then he, he almost like presses pause, and then he further describes his role as a missionary to the Gentiles, uh, the, the incredible mercy of God in the gospel, especially being given to those who are not a part of Israel. And he goes on for, for 13 verses on that. And then he comes back in verse 14, the beginning of our text, and Paul returns to his original thought. He says, for this reason. In other words, in light of the gospel. That's what Paul has in mind. He's referring generally to everything in Ephesians 1 through 3, this eternal plan of God, our adoption as God's children, the salvation that comes from being found in Christ. But more specifically, Paul is referring to what God has done for those in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through thir uh, chapter 3, verse 13. Those verses reveal to us that the gospel is not just for the children of Abraham, but it is for Jews and non-Jews alike. And this was an unheard of thought at that point. It's summarized in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Paul writes it this way. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What Paul is saying is that the Old Testament hints to us that Gentiles will one day be welcomed into God's family, but nowhere in the Old Testament does it suggest that they will be welcomed as co-heirs, that they will be welcomed as equal partakers of the promises of the gospel. Ephesians is written to a primarily Gentile congregation as Paul is reminding them, and I would imagine most of us here this morning, that they have been doubly blessed by Christ in the mercy that Christ bestows upon them 
as Christians in the mercy of God that begins with Christmas. We have not just been brought from death to life, as we saw in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10 last week, but we've also been brought from foreigners to family, as we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Note these words from Ephesians 2. And he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This double blessing that is here for those of us who are Gentiles, this blessing of of being transferred from death to life, from those of us being transferred from being foreigners to now family, that's what Paul has in mind here when he begins his prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, when he says, for this reason. And that's what Paul has in mind when he says this in verse 15, in this somewhat awkward phrase where he talks about in verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul is reminding us by saying this that every single person who ever existed has equal access to the Father if they are found in Christ. That God is able to save anyone from any background, from any race, because he is the sovereign God of all. And because of this, Paul prays with confidence before God's throne. As he says earlier in Ephesians chapter 3, says this, this was according to the eternal, eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So what is the first truth from this text this morning for, the, for us this Christmas? Well, according to the beginning of Paul's prayer here, he roots his prayer in what Christ has accomplished for everyone regardless of race, regardless of their background, regardless of their past, if they are found in Christ, then they now have confidence before God because of Christ. And that's our first truth for us this morning. We have confidence before God because of Christ. The reason why Paul says that he is able to bow his knees before God, the reason why he is able to call God Father is because of what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. The second statement begins in verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. The first two verses of this prayer remind us where our confidence in prayer lies, why we can actually pray, why we can approach God with confidence. And now, here in these next two verses, we see the content of the prayer itself. We see what Paul is actually praying for. And if you were to sum up the content of Paul's prayer in just two words, I think it would be this, be strengthened, be strengthened. This is a prayer for strength, and as we will see, it is prayer, uh, later we will see that this is a prayer for strength to more fully grasp God's love, as we see in verse 18. Grasping God's love is not something that is for the weak of heart. In fact, Paul seems to hint that such a task is impossible for us on our own, which is why he begins this prayer by uh, by pleading to, uh, he's, he's making a plea to God for his abundant mercy. 
Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. God is overflowing with glory and power and grace and majesty. And so Paul points to all of that abundance and he asks God that the church might be strengthened in their hearts. He prays that the Spirit might be at work in the hearts of believers. That's what this statement about the inner being means, that that God's Spirit would be at work in our hearts, strengthening us through God's power so that we might more fully grasp God's love for us in Christ. Paul teaches us in Ephesians that while the Spirit dwells with us at conversion, we saw that in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul also makes, us, makes it clear to us that we are continually being strengthened, we're continually being renewed by the Spirit. Uh, this is seen in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 as well. We know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise, also with Jesus and excuse me, I'm going to start over. We know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Day by day, God is at work through his spirit, renewing you, strengthening you in your inner being. But what does that mean? What does it mean that God is at work strengthening us, renewing us? Paul further describes what this means in verse 17 when he says that Christ will dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul is essentially describing the same thing that we see on virtually every single modern day television show on HGTV. Christ dwells in your hearts at the moment of conversion, but the rest of your life is a continual process of renovation. It's a continual process of God improving you, transforming your heart, renovating your heart into his dwelling place. This is Paul's plea to God, that God would increasingly, increasingly clean up. God would increasingly strengthen. God would increasingly beautify your inner heart so that believers would more fully grasp Christ dwelling within them. Now, it would be wrong for us to read this prayer of Paul and conclude then that it is time for us to go grab a broom. It's time for us to go grab metaphorical paintbrushes, a tool tool belt, and for us to go get to work. Notice that this process of renovation, this process of strengthening our hearts to more fully grasp Christ's love is not something we can accomplish on our own. Paul prays that God would be the one who does it. In fact, this is an active but also primarily a passive activity. Notice how Paul starts his prayer here. He doesn't pray a passive-aggressive prayer. He doesn't say uh, something that's really actually, it's, it's, uh, maybe you've been around people that, that pray like this. They're, they're praying towards God, God, but they're actually praying toward you. He, Paul doesn't say, God, I pray that these Christians would wake up, that they would get down to business, that they would start strengthening their own hearts so that they can more, have you more fully dwell within them. No, Paul just simply says, God out of the abundance of your glory, we ask that you would be pleased to work in our hearts. God is the one who is at work 
It's not you, it's not me. We can pray for it, but God is the one who is the master architect. He is the one who is pleased to continually transform our hearts into the image of Christ. This is a passive process. But also at the same time, in the great paradox of of faith, it is also an active process. Notice that Paul tells us that Christ will dwell in our hearts through faith. You see, even as God is the one who strengthens our hearts through the abundance of his glory, we also must have faith. This is saving faith. This is trust in Christ. Yes, that Christ has delivered us from our sin and death, but also it is an increasing trust, an increasing confidence in God's salvation for us that we are found in Christ. What's more, Paul says at the end of verse 17 that we are to be rooted and grounded in love. We are to pursue love toward God. We are to pursue love toward those who are around us. And as we pursue those self-sacrificial acts, as we deny ourselves for those around us and for God, God is pleased to strengthen our hearts and to increasingly make our hearts his home. That's the second truth from this text. It is a gift of God's abundant mercy that Christ increasingly dwells within us. It is a gift of God's abundant mercy that Christ increasingly dwells within us. Never forget that God's work in your heart comes from the overflow of his mercy, of his glory, of his grace. There is nothing that we can do to coerce God into action. There is no formula for us to transform our hearts into a more beautiful dwelling place for Christ. It is only through the work of his spirit that our hearts become fit for God's dwelling place. It is a gift of God's abundant mercy. So to this point in the prayer, we have seen Paul places our confidence in the ability to even pray in what Christ has done for us in the gospel. And we see the content or the, the ask of Paul's prayer. We can, we can boldly pray because we are God's child. And now we can pray for out of God's incredible mercy that he might be at work in our hearts. And then we turn to verse 18. Starting in verse 18, we see the reason why Paul wants God to work in our hearts. It says this, Now, that you may have strength to comprehend, comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What is the reason that Paul prays for the Spirit to be at work in our hearts? According to this text, it's so that we can more fully grasp the boundless love of God for his children. Or perhaps more accurately, Not just the the boundless love of God for his children, but that we can more fully grasp the boundless love of Christ for his adopted brothers and sisters. You see, we oftentimes talk about the fatherly love of God, and we should. It is a beautiful picture. It's what's described that we looked at a couple weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 1 when we are talked about or described as those who are adopted in love in Christ. But here, the focus is something different. The focus isn't primarily love on, uh, on the fatherly love of God for us. The, the focus is on the love of our older brother. A love that is so wide, that is so long, that is so high and so deep that it conquered hell for us. Now, if any of you have had siblings... 
Any of you who have multiple children know how much siblings can squabble, how much they can get on one another's nerves, how much they can undermine one another, and on and on, but not so here. So great is the love of Christ, your adopted older brother, that he offered up himself to take those who were his enemies and make them his brothers and sisters. So great is this love of Christ, our faithful older brother, that he offered up his life to take on treasonous rebels and seat them with him on his throne. He alone is worthy of all of humanity to be God's child, and yet because of his love for his father and for you, he went to the cross and the grave. But Paul isn't just speaking of a cognitive, intellectual knowledge of this love. After all, in verse 19, he prays that we would know this love that surpasses knowledge, which is kind of interesting to try to figure out how can you know something that is comprehensible? How can we fully grasp this love? How can we intellectually grasp this love that is so great that it makes no sense? The answer is we can't. But we can experience it. And that's what Paul is urging us toward here. This love may be impossible for us to fully explain, but it is possible for us to experience. It is possible for us to trust in it, and that is what Paul is describing here. Kent Hughes, a, a pastor uh, from the Chicago area, writes it this way, For those who have not experienced this love, no words will suffice. For those who have experienced it, no words will quite do. That's a powerful statement. Those who have not experienced this words, we can't describe it. We can't explain it to someone to make them understand. And yet for those who have experienced this, this love of Christ, no words that we could use would fully describe the incredible love of Christ for us, his brothers and sisters. And that's our third statement here this morning. As Christ increasingly dwells in us, we become increasingly aware of God's unfathomable love. As you grow in faith, as you are increasingly established in faith, as God continues to strengthen you in your inner being, you will have more and more capacity to grasp and comprehend the love of God in Christ for you. The love of Christ is like an ocean, and your capacity to understand it, to grasp it, is just a simple jar. And yet, the more that you grow in Christ, the larger that jar grows as well, allowing you to grow and grasp more and more of that love. And so it will be for all of eternity. As Christ increasingly dwells in us, we become increasingly aware of God's unfathomable love for us in Christ. As we continue through this text, I want to focus just on the final phrase of verse 19. Remember what we've seen so far in this prayer. Paul is just saying, God, I approach you in prayer because of your, your love on display in the gospel and because of the riches of your mercy. I ask that you might strengthen our hearts so that we can increasingly understand, that we can increasingly experience the love of Christ. And then he ends with this at the end of verse 19. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What is the ultimate aim here of Paul's prayer? What is the ultimate aim of being strengthened in the spirit of Christ, increasingly dwelling in us, of our ability to fully grasp Christ's love for us? It is so that we can be filled with all the fullness of God. And you may be saying, well, that's great, but what on earth does that mean? 
Well, the answer is given to us in Ephesians chapter 4. A similar phrase is used in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes." So what does Paul have in mind here when he says that we might attain the fullness of God? Well, he means the same thing that he says later as the fullness of Christ. He's, he's talking about spiritual maturity. That's the, the content or the focus or the thrust of Paul's prayer here in Ephesians 3. That when we are increasingly growing in our awareness of Christ's love for us, Paul prays that we might grow spiritually. It is, at its core, a prayer for spiritual maturity. Last week, we saw that this was one of the aims of God saving us in Christ. And when he makes us a part of, our, uh, of his new creation, it is so that we can bear fruit in this life. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, God desires that his people will not stay stagnant, but that they will grow in maturity. But this isn't a self-help book. Paul is not just saying, try harder, but he instead gives us a glimpse at where spiritual maturity comes from. It is a response to the work of God in our hearts, making us increasingly aware of how much Christ loves us. And that's our fourth statement this morning. Spiritual growth starts with grasping the love of Christ. It starts with grasping the love of Christ. And the more I think about that, I don't like that word start. That implies that it just starts there, but then we don't have to grasp Christ's love anymore. The reality is that, that spiritual growth at its core is an increasing awareness of how much Christ loves us. Spiritual maturity is always the result of more fully grasping the love of God for us in Christ. And as we increasingly understand what God has done for us, we bear more fruit. The love of God is the seed, the spirit strengthening our hearts to understand this love is the water that makes that plant grow. All this results in the fruit of spiritual maturity. Spiritual growth is all about grasping the love of Christ. Now, Paul has concluded this ask in his prayer, and Paul closes with a statement of expectation, a statement of confidence in God's power to accomplish these things for our joy and his glory, starting in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Remember how Paul begins this prayer. He asks that God would be pleased to do these things. All of this rests on the willingness of God to strengthen the hearts of his people. And yet here Paul closes with confidence that God is able to do that, that God desires to do that, and not just that, but to do far more than we could ever imagine. 
Indeed, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that is now at work within each and every one of us. Ephesians 1, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You see, Paul closes his prayer with a reminder that God is not finished with you yet. God is not finished with his church yet. He has big plans for you. He has big plans for his church. He values you too much to leave you where you are at. God will not be thwarted in his plans to reveal his glory to the ends of the earth. And so what is this doxology, these final two verses? What does that teach us this morning? Simply this, have an expectant heart this Christmas for God's glory. Have an expectant heart this Christmas for God's glory. Do not be discouraged, but have an expectant heart. Expect that God will be at work in you. Expect that God will transform you. Expect that God will reveal more and more of his love to you. Expect that God will lead you into spiritual maturity. Expect that God's glory will spread. Expect that God will is not finished with you yet. And so as we stand just two days away from the celebration of Christmas this year, I hope that you take these words to heart from Ephesians chapter three. Simply this, God's great desire is for you to more fully grasp his love for his glory and your joy. God's great desire is for you to more fully grasp his great love for you for his glory and your joy. God desires that you would more fully grasp his love, but what exactly does that look like? Well, it starts by praying this prayer this Christmas, asking that God would strengthen your heart, that you would be able to more fully comprehend the love of God for you. But you wouldn't just pray this for yourself. You would also pray it for others, that you would pray it for your family members, that you would pray it for your church, that you would pray it for those that surround you, that we would be people of prayer, asking God to strengthen us so that we could fully comprehend or more fully comprehend the love of God in Christ for us. It also means that we should be wary or we should be mindful of where our hearts and minds dwell this Christmas. It is so easy to get caught up in the presence. It is so easy to get caught up in the nostalgia. It's so easy to get caught up in the sweet time with family. On the other hand, It is so easy to get weighed down with grief, with loss, and with pain. One is a a good thing. One is a sorrowful thing. Both of them are realities that we cannot ignore. And yet we must remember the most important truth of the gospel. We should be mindful of where our hearts and minds dwell this Christmas. Do Do they dwell on the wonders of his love on display in the gospel? Or do they dwell somewhere else? And this text is a charge for us to pursue spiritual maturity, not to do so from a sense of duty, but instead to just do it from a place of love, to to recognize, to realize that God isn't done with you yet, that God still has plans for you. His love is still at work transforming you, bringing you to the fullness of his Son. God's great desire is for you to more fully grasp his love for his glory and your joy. And so this Christmas, I just encourage you to 
to grasp onto that, to, to experience that, to, to really grab onto true, lasting joy. To recognize that Christmas, as we've said time and time again so far, is this dawning of God's eternal plan for His eternal glory and our eternal joy. Let's pray. God, we do ask that you would help us, even as the Apostle Paul prays, to to more fully grasp your love for us. God, I pray that we would be a people of prayer, that we would pray these prayers for ourselves, for our family members, for our church, for those who surround us, That the content of our prayers as it would reveal our priorities would be priorities to to know you more, to experience more joy in you, that you would receive more glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.